Hello, and welcome to episode 21 of the Haiku Chronicle podcast. Don't fret, my lovely regular listeners. You haven't missed one. There is no episode 20. I was on holiday, and rather than confuse myself, I've jumped an episode as I'm in week 21 of my haiku writing journey. This week, I've been reading about shiki and the technique of sachet. It's a technique that I'm very fond of, and I wanted to explore it to understand it better. I hope you'll be interested in what I've learned and the haiku that I'll use to illustrate it. All the articles or books I quote will be in the show notes on the website, poetryp.com. So if you fancy some reading, you can find the links there. There is no guest haiku this week. Sorry, but next time I'll make up for it, as I'm doing a breakfast special. I have a number of submissions for this, but I'm happy to have more. So if you have some haiku, or probably senryu, on the topic of breakfast, send them in to me and tell me a little bit about yourself. You'll find the contact address on the website. As I said, this week I've been reading about Shiki, who is credited with developing the idea of sachet. He was working at the turn of the 20th century, when changes were happening within the cultural scene in Japan. Now, I don't know much about Japanese history, but I understand that at this time Japan was opening itself up to the world. Japanese culture was cross-fertilising with Western culture, and this, coupled with his education and continuing interest in philosophy, influenced Shiki. He felt that by creating the new genre of haiku with sashi techniques, it might give the little Japanese poem a few more decades of life. Why? Because he was worried that given the restriction of what we in the West call syllables in haiku, that there would shortly come a time when all possible combination of words would have been achieved. So what is sashi? It's writing poetry as a sketch from life, writing exactly what you see so the reader could also experience the scene and understand what had moved you. Remembering that what you write is supposed to trigger resonance, that is meaning in your reader, based on his or her experience. I'll tackle resonance or meaning in another podcast. Having started to compose haiku using sachet, Shiki became aware of the limitations of sticking strictly to this technique. He found that in doing so, in not allowing for creativity, the resulting poem could be a little... mm, So what? He saw that strict adherence to sachet was really for beginners. He suggested that there was a developmental process for haiku poets who used this technique. Step 1. Writing haiku as a sketch from life. Step 2. Selective realism for the more advanced. Step 3. Poetic truth for the master haijin. Or, as Alan Summers puts it most succinctly, Step 1, to copy reality as it is. Step 2, to select carefully from experience. And Step 3, to include Makoto, internal psychological reality of what is truthful. Here is an example by Shiki himself, which is quoted by Ashley Capes in his article An Introduction to Advanced Haiku. Spring Day, a long line of footprints on the sandy beach. Some people may think, so what? However, I think there are layers in this haiku. Firstly, there is the pure vision of a sandy beach on a spring day, and this definitely resonates with me. Only a couple of weeks ago, I was wandering along the beach myself. The image of the footprint is iconic. 
don't you think? Here we have a long line of footprints, which begs a couple of questions in my mind. Where are the owners of the footprints? And as they're not mentioned, have they departed the beach? And then there's the element of time, a long line of footprints. To me, it speaks of a lone journey across the sand. What can you read into it? Let's turn to those stages of development. We know what a sketch from life is, but what about the other two stages? Selective realism was step two. Now I think I may still be in the first stage, but I'm veering towards selective realism. The way I would explain it is that as we develop as haiku writers, we discover what naturally draws us within an environment. In this stage, we go to that thing. We frame it, a bit like looking at it through a camera lens. The part we've chosen to focus on is a complete picture. It comes to life for us. It tells us a story of its own. Now, if we just told what we saw, we'd still be in the first stage, the sketch stage. But now we've advanced a little. We tell the story using our aesthetics and with a view that is personal to us. We add subjectivity. If we think of it as taking a photo, there are clear elements of subjectivity in that the photographer aims his or her camera here rather than there, at this height or an angle, rather than some other way, at a certain time of day and perhaps at a certain moment of action. This is how haiku, even the seemingly objective or sachet poems, can become subjective. We play with the scene. We can even change the facts of the sketch and use a little poetic license. For example, a mouse darts across the path, fallen leaves. That's one of mine, which I read out, I think, on a previous episode of the podcast. I have a little mouse that lives somewhere near the compost heap in my garden. Often when I'm on my knees weeding or digging, it rushes along the wall at the back of the flower bed frightening the life out of me. And when I wrote the haiku, I preferred to have it dart across the garden path rather than the little path it's worn along the flower bed. It felt better to me. Is it a so what? Well, I guess that depends on who's reading it and what shared experience we have. But I hope the reader realises it's set in the autumn and they can see the little mouse and hear the rustling of the leaves as it rushes along. Does it need more meaning? Well... That's a topic for a future podcast. Don't worry, it's in the planning stages. The next stage is poetic truth, or makoto. I'm nowhere near this advanced stage yet. This is how Ueda describes it. Makoto is sachet directed towards internal reality. It's based on the same principle of direct observation, except that the project to be observed is the poet's own self. The poet is to experience his inner life as simply and sincerely as he is to observe nature. And he is to describe the experience in words as simple and direct as the ancient poets. So simple and direct that they seem ordinary. Now, Shiki and Sashi has has had its critics. Jim Ketchian and Scott Metz, to name but two, Metz going as far as saying that the essential lifeblood of the haiku tradition has never had anything to do with realism and that, in fact, interpreting and composing haiku in this way is basically a modern view of haiku. Professor Nenton, Emeritus Professor at Kyoto University of Education, 
proposes that in the view of some of the haiku writing society, one of the reasons that Shiki is not highly regarded is he didn't lead a long life, living as he did from 1867 to 1902. Perhaps he was not able to adequately expand on his theories during this time. And the professor gives us another suggestion as to why Shiki's reputation could be handicapped. And that's his method of composition. Apparently, he would gather friends round, light an incense stick, and the group would then compose haiku until the stick went out. In a sense, this was a method of composition which was regarded as playful, not serious enough. And the professor advances a theory that rather than being a trivial method of composition, this method was extremely intense, which helped to bring out the subconscious and then takes the haiku to a higher plane. What do you think? Was his achievement directly responsible for the success of haiku from the 20th century onwards? Did Shiki's idea of sketching from life, allowing descriptions of subjects not previously covered within the haiku genre, come at just the right time to interest Western writers and expand the knowledge and practice of haiku? Let me know what you think. So what do I have to offer you this week? As I said earlier, I was on holiday last week. I went to the Bernese Mountains, to the Lauterbrunnen Valley, which, call me bias if you will, I think is the most breathtaking valley in the world. Incidentally, this valley with its 72 waterfalls was the inspiration for Tolkien's Rivendell, and I think you can hear the elves whispering when you're walking around the tree line. It snowed, of course it did, but that was okay. Snow in the mountains is appropriate. And anyway, at this time of year, it melts fairly quickly. So today I offer you a stage one, maybe just creeping into stage two haiku. Lilac buds, under a blanket, the mountains. I wrote this to be interpreted potentially in a couple of ways. If you know anything about gardening in the mountains, the less hardy plants are wrapped in hessian or something similar to keep them warm enough to live through the winter. Last weekend, I unwrapped my lilacs to find them budding. And of course, my lilacs are in the shadow of the beautiful mountains. The other interpretation, if I truly stick to writing a sketch, was that I was focused on my lilac tree. Above it, a fog was covering the valley like a blanket, with only the lower cliff edges to be seen. I hope you can imagine it. That's it for this week. I hope you enjoyed the podcast. My next podcast will be in a couple of weeks. I'll be featuring a number of emerging and more practised haiku writers, and our topic will be breakfast. I do have submissions, but there's always room for more, so if you fancy joining in with this topic, please go to the submissions area of the Poetry P website and send your breakfast haiku to me. The final deadline is now April the 22nd. Before I go this week, I must say thanks to Alan Summers, Richard Gilbert and Michael Smear for all their help and suggestions for my reading this week. It was much appreciated. Thanks for joining me today, and I look forward to your company again on April the 23rd, St George's Day. Till then, keep writing. <laughs>